Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of the Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Jim Grant. Jim Grant is the gold standard on Wall Street. Jim is the founder of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, a leading journal on financial markets, which he has published since 1983. Mr. Grant is also the author of seven books covering both financial history and biography. Grant's journalism has been featured in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Foreign Affairs. He's appeared on 60 Minutes, Jim Lehrer's PBS NewsHour, and the CBS Evening News. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with Mr. Grant on his new book, The Forgotten Depression, 1921, The Crash That Cured Itself. Jim, thanks for hosting us today. It's a pleasure. So, first question, typically I always ask the cliche, why did you write this book? But in this case... For, for money. <laughs> for money. <laughs> right, times are tough. The Obama economy. Why should Americans care about a recession oh. that took place in 1920 or 1921? Well, they should care a lot because uh, during the last recession, which became uh, gloriously we call the Great Recession, uh, the market in historical analogy was monopolized by the 1930s. They couldn't stop talking about the 1930s. The chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, Ben S. Bernanke, Ph.D., was warranted uh, as a scholar of authority on 1937. Perhaps he was amortizing his dissertation, but in any case, he couldn't stop talking about the 1930s, which was a notably unsuccessful example of countercyclical policy. It began in 1929, did that depression, and ended about 1946, more or less, give or take a fiscal quarter. Uh, so why not, I thought to myself, uh, write about a depression that ended uh, more or less promptly? To be sure, uh, not without a great deal of dislocation and, and uh, suffering, but still one that uh, did end, and uh, paradoxically, or perhaps not, uh, it ended without government intervention. And it ended in 18 months, as you highlight in the book, a painful 18 months, but nonetheless. And uh, uh, following those 18 months uh, was uh, a storied, uh, proverbially roaring recovery in the 1920s. Now, Woodrow Wilson is sort of the bane of the existence of many Blaze fans. Uh, We're still mad at him? Still mad at him. Um, died like 100 years ago. Never forgive him. <laughs> this recovery that quote-unquote laissez-faire and, and in, in actuality laissez-faire recovery started during his administration. How did it come to be that Woodrow Wilson did not get his paws on the economy? By accident. He, as you'll recall, he uh, went out west on a train trip to uh, sell his uh, his League of Nations idea to the American public. He had to do it in person then. The internet constantly being down and malfunctioning. Anyway, he got in the train and uh, suffered a stroke and was incapacitated. And so was his, his administration. But you're quite right. He, his, his instincts and his, uh, his track record uh, were in the direction of heavy-handed intervention during the war. There was a full-blown war socialism put in place. Uh, in fairness, he was in favor of a balanced budget thereafter, but uh, his, uh, his policies were mainly in the direction of interference rather than not. And one of the things I find interesting is that for those economists, uh, and you mentioned Christina Romer in the book, who look back at this financial period, they say, and of course they always say this, well, you know, it, it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. 1920 to 1921, it was a completely different world. There was not this level of financial sophistication and the like. One of the things I found interesting in the book is the fact that you talk about a society which 
sort of had its own Occupy Wall Street back then, which was probably even stronger than the real one today. And there was plenty of... They had explosives. Yeah, they had explosives. They blew up a bomb right around the corner from your office. They blew up uh, the front porch of the Attorney General of the United States. And they said the Red Scare was for real. Uh, The explosives were for real. The the anger was for real. Uh, It was an unhappy... I mean, there had been an influenza pandemic. Uh, Chicago White Sox had fixed the 1919 World Series. I, I shouldn't say those things in the same breath. But in any case, it was not the era of good feelings. So let's talk about how we ended up in the recession in the first place. So there had been a, war, a wartime economy, like you said. There were price controls, high taxes, confiscatory it was, taxes. It was rapid inflation. And as they measured it then, it was in the low to mid-teens. And uh, nothing stokes social anger like inflation. Uh, as you noted a moment ago, there's every reason for most economists to uh, pass over this episode because, so they say, the world was different. And in truth, the world was different. It was different. Um, the economy actually was smaller. Uh, it was to a greater degree, a far greater degree, of course, agricultural. Um, there was not so sophisticated or uh, extensive a financial network, but uh, the labor force was heavily unionized, much more so than today. Um, and uh, the economy of 1920-21 was not so very different from that of 1929-33. And if uh, we should disregard 1920, then we should also not so much pay such rapt and obsessive attention to the Great Depression if we are formulating policy. But what I think is is relevant about both episodes is, is these social institution we call the price mechanism of the invisible hand. Um, when prices are very low, people do one thing, when they're very high, they do something else. Uh, this, uh, uh, the free market is, uh, is a quite wondrous institution, and that's what was on full display, in my opinion, in 1921. And what precipitated this inflation uh, was, in large part, the creation of the Federal Reserve. But was, was, what precipitated was, was, was wartime finance, war. facilitated um, heavily and, and subsidized by the Federal Reserve, yes, to be sure. And you, you outline in, in great detail in the book uh, the rationale behind the creation of the Federal Reserve and its very slim mandate where basically it went from maintaining the value of a currency to then, today, price stability. Uh, as well as full employment. How did we end up on this trajectory? I don't know. You wake up one morning and they're in the central planning business. <laughs> but they have elided gradually and uh, by graduating by degree from central banking, a very narrow kind of classical gold standard era kind of central banking to full blown, in my opinion, full blown central planning, complete with crisis administration, um, interest rate suppression. Uh, the Fed must be the least self-aware organization extant. It simply doesn't uh, acknowledge any of this, but its mandate. When you look back on the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, what's the purpose of this outfit? Well, it's to provide uh, market and commercial paper and to uh, uh, furnish uh, liquidity for seasonal, uh, for seasonal stringency and blah, blah, blah. And for other purposes, it turns out it turns out that was a phrase to pay attention to. So, by analogy, it's sort of like the general welfare clause 
in the Constitution, except that was probably more strict a little <laughs> bit than yeah. other that's purposes. This turned out to be the most um, expansive uh, form of other purposes. So compare the size and scope of the collapse that occurred between 1920 and 1921 to what we experienced in the quote-unquote Great Recession of yeah. a few years ago. Well, the 1920 affair was far more severe. It was uh, our commodity prices um, down uh, 45% or thereabouts, top to bottom. Nothing like it had occurred before, and indeed nothing like it occurred after, including the years 1929 and 1930. And it was the most precipitous decline in the shortest period of time ever recorded. Uh, stock prices, top to bottom, are down about the same amount, about 45 or so percent. Industrial production down the teen, maybe more than 10, 25% or so. Um, uh, unemployment certainly was severe. That, too, was unmeasured. The GDP was really unmeasured. In fact, the concept of the macroeconomy had been uninvented. Uh, a side light on that, uh, in Hong Kong in 1960, there was a man named Copperthwaite, who was the financial secretary of the then British colony. And on principle, Mr. Copperthwaite, some, uh, subsequently Sir John, I think, Copperthwaite, in principle, he refused to allow these data to be gathered, lest somebody try to do something with them. <laughs> um, so what the 20s uh, did not have was uh, a now familiar wall of government statistics, and I guess for that reason they also did not have the perhaps statistical-induced economic hypochondria which I think we are suffering from today. And you talk about in the book, if you look at the folks in Treasury, those who run the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, they were actual bankers. They were not yeah. economists. How did they, they come? They spoke English. Yeah. <laughs> they believed in reason and <laughs> gravity. Well, they, they, you know, they had their prejudices. Well, they, they, uh, some of them were very uh, they had narrow backgrounds. Uh, uh, they had not very many of them went to college, actually, which I think that was an advantage, <laughs> probably accounts for some of the success of the. Uh, what I deem to be the success, everybody else thinks is a failure. But I, um, Benjamin Strong, who was Milton Friedman's hero of that period, uh, was a high school graduate. Well-read, to be sure, and literate and thoughtful, but still by no means an economist. Yeah, and you, you read Benjamin Strong. You read in the book, as Benjamin Strong, the former president of Bankers Trust, I'm quoting here, had advocated lower prices, so did the former Floyd professor of finance, Adolf Miller. Quote, this is Miller. Where there has been inflation, there must follow deflation as a necessary condition to the restoration of economic health. He continues, banks must reel in the inflationary increment of their wartime lending, he said. As for the rest of us, the economist added, more production or less consumption was the way forward. Work and save, he counseled. Why are these words so radical by today's mm -hmm. standards? Um, I think that the legacy of the Great Depression, uh, misinterpreted or properly interpreted, continues to haunt everyone in power. Um, central banking doctrine today holds that uh, only interest rates and asset prices and exchange rates should adjust. Uh, wage rates never, and the price level never. We have, in a kind of an Orwellian fashion, redefined Inflation as a substandard rate of inflation. The authorities, that is to say, the Fed, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, always got to, uh, insist that uh, uh, that the 
currency they they sponsor and uh, so actively print that currency must uh, depreciate in value by two percent a year. So that's the that's the dogma. It's me. I mean, I would think that uh, prices ought to be dwindling, ought to be falling as a reflection of progress of the age. But it costs less to make things, so should it cost less to buy them? But that is uh, that's a radical opinion. <laughs> well, and of, of course. You can look at computers, you can look at the first Apple notebook that was built in the Apple notebook today, and you see price deflation in certain consumer goods. You don't see it in financial assets, of course. And uh, it's interesting that financial assets always seem to go up, and the Federal Reserve is the Federal Reserve. It's sort of the banker's bank. Yeah, well, uh, what is new about today's finances is not so much even our stunningly low interest rates. We had those in the uh, 1940s in this country. We had them in Victorian Britain. Uh, what is new is the uh, federally sponsored levitation of stock bond and real estate prices superimposed on low interest rates. That's new. And uh, to my mind, uh, very dangerous, certainly um, uh, something of a fraud, but it is also very new and untested. The outcome is we have got it into our collective policy-making heads that uh, asset prices ought to lead things rather than to reflect things. It seems to me that asset prices ought to reflect underlying economic facts rather than to uh, be set, set out ahead to kind of drag everything up behind them. You talk about in the book price discovery, the fact that, in particular, the price of labor, wages, were able to fall precipitously, and that then cleansed the system and enabled a recovery. I, I don't think that the left or folks that were not too appreciative of that wage falling would, would call it cleansing, but nevertheless, the economy recovered quickly. I'm not, cleansing is, a, is a, a, kind of a, it's a kind of a moralistic and, and not very helpful word for that. What falling wages do is, is kind of re, reset the, uh, the cost of production. So prices were falling. And if wages didn't fall, profit margins would have been squeezed. As they, they would have to squeeze anyway. But if wages hadn't fallen, they would have been really squeezed. Therefore, there would have been mass unemployment. Therefore, recovery would have been much delayed. Falling wages, keeping pace to a degree, but not completely with falling prices, helped... Um, uh, entrepreneurs help people deploying capital to see a profit, therefore to engage and re-engage labor. It's, it's actually it's quite simple. I mean, in the 1930s, uh, well, anyway, actually we were getting ahead of ourselves. In the 1930s, that's what didn't happen. Wages were not allowed. But President Hoover, on you know, as a, as a matter of uh, as a matter of equity, as a matter of humanity, uh, urged uh, American. Uh, business and not to let wages fall, and they they didn't for a time, and uh, what resulted was mass unemployment. And this this concept of price discovery, uh, effectively letting reality bear itself out through prices. Well said. How how does the Fed, for the layman who knows little about all of the inner machinations of the Federal Reserve, how does the Federal Reserve manipulate and effectively mess up the pricing mechanism, and what are the secondary and additional effects of that? Well, its M.O. is to uh, 
uh, materialized dollar bills on a computer keyboard. Uh, it's not so important how it does it, but uh, uh, it does it as simply as that. No, no fuss, no muss. It, uh, it uh, tells uh, one of its bank partners that's going to buy something from that bank, say a bunch of paper, gold and bonds. And the Fed says that uh, we'll buy those from you with dollars that you will find in your account. The dollars miraculously turn up in the account of this bank. The dollars didn't exist until the Fed put them there. So that's new money. Now, the effect of that transaction is to increase the stock of dollar bills in the world and also, uh, to a degree, to, uh, uh, to affect a reduction in the rate of interest. Uh, as bond prices rise, interest rates fall. So the Fed does two things. It creates more money, and it, it brings down rates of interest. The rate of interest is very important. It's the, uh, the hurdle rate for investment. It's the, it's the, uh, the marker of whether an investment is likely to be profitable or not. Um, it is the instrument by which you appraise uh, and value of estimated future stream of cash flows. It's important for stock market valuation. Lower interest rates mean friskier, higher stock and real estate prices. And as those prices go up at the Fed's, Fed's uh, beck and call, uh, the theory goes that people feel richer, they spend more, and we're off the races. Well, pass the common sense test. Now, not not to give away our book and discourage. Come on, don't no, no, sell it. Don't yeah. give it away. Ben, please, this can, is capitalism. Can, can can you give us a little taste of how we did get out of this horrendous recession and yeah. and you call it depression uh, within eighteen months? Well, um, things got cheap enough when. Prices get low. Uh, people stop producing things, and um, uh, and they look around and they say, uh, "My goodness, uh, there's going to be a shortage of things." And by the way, have you noticed how cheap it's gotten? That's what happened approximately in the summer of 1921. Uh, America was on the bargain counter. Uh, prices had fallen. Wages had fallen. Um, um, Companies had uh, run down their inventories of everything, and um, foreigners seeing this thought, "My goodness, we're in a pretty good country, and uh, why don't we go and buy some of that?" And uh, gold flooded into America, thereby boosting the money supply. The Fed, at length, having raised interest rates in the face of this horrific deflation, began to lower them, and um, and uh, spontaneously. Uh, People made decisions to increase rather than to decrease what they were about. And uh, so, um, at, at the bottom of the stock market, for example, you saw bargains that were just simply astonishing, and people recognized them as such at length. Um, and you know, RCA was the great growth stock of the 1920s and was trading at the lows in 1921 for like a dollar and a half a share. It would earn that much per share. Its profits per share would be that much in 1923. So basically, the stock market was for free. And um, in retrospect, of course, it's, you can see that. In prospect, only um, only the, uh, the kind of the bold few and the liquid, not so few, but the people who had who had confidence, courage, and cash um, uh, did very well by uh, putting faith in their funds in America. Two things that you mentioned, which 
fly in the face of um, so so the question I think the question for the interventionist left is why did the depression ever end because what we haven't mentioned is that uh, the federal response to uh, this this horrific decline in prices wages and employment decline the the federal response first under under Wilson and under Harding was to kind of sit there and say um, what's going on yeah, Paul Krugman, Krugman would say that we would just continue in this spiral forever. Right. The budget was balanced throughout this depression, and interest rates went up, I think, the highest discount rate in the New York Federal Reserve back by 8% in the face of collapsing commodity prices. So the so-called real or inflation-adjusted, or deflation, I guess is a better phrase, and adjusted interest rate was sky high, punitive, strangulating. And yet... Um, uh, you know, and yet people saw the bargains in front of them. The, the economists call this the real balances effect, kind of a fancy way of saying things got cheap enough. But uh, prices and wages got cheap enough to make those prices and wages attractive to enterprising people. And since since you mention it, the depression, the actual depression, and, and coming out of the depression, in your view, I would imagine you would say post wartime we got rid of much of the regulation and the central planning of the economy, and that allowed us to recover. Is that your yeah, that was, that was also that was also a, um, doffing the uh, this uh, this wartime socialism was a very big feature of what went right in the twenties. Um, uh, Wilson uh, was ruminating one day, I think nineteen nineteen or so after the war, he was saying this quote in the book that uh, really that. You know, this, this socialist regime ought to be perpetuated because somebody ought to be in charge of things. <laughs> um, yeah, well, uh, nobody actually was put in charge of things, much to the much to the blessing of the 48 states. And though he did implement uh, some degree of central planning, since we talked about the end of the Great Depression and to tie it back to this recession, um, Truman was president when we had that recovery, in part. And Truman, of course, effectively went out of business during this recession. Talk a little bit about Truman, because he plays a role in your book. Yeah. Well, Harry Truman was an artillery captain in the uh, Missouri National Guard, was um, sent to France, had uh, an active time of it uh, during the war, came back, and with his uh, friend Eddie Jacobson, set up uh, a menswear shop in Kansas City, just about the peak of the boom. And uh, they financed their inventory uh, with bank credit. And uh, it was, you know, prototypical tools of the cycle. They were uh, unknowing. Um, uh, they, they had no sense that what they were doing was, or if was, was, uh, was almost predestined uh, by the, uh, uh, the, the by the, the, the fact of this this levitating inflation, um, so they they they, they saw the pro- they, 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 they saw this gurgling fabulous prosperity around them. They got in on it. They found the credit and they built the store. And uh, time went out, and uh, they got they went broke, and their debts dogged them for years. Uh, so uh, uh, Truman was uh, was most embittered about this and. Uh, I think uh, I, I couldn't find 
the satisfactory, satisfying documentary evidence to say that he implemented the 1946 Employment Act because he went broke in 1921 <laughs> or 22. But uh, I think that that certainly was a part of what was on his mind. And the other element that sort of ties this book to a debate that has been increasingly going on, at least in some circles today, is you mentioned the flood of gold into the country. Explain how that classical, and I grant that it wasn't exactly the same gold standard as you had in the late 19th century and early 20th century, but explain the simplicity of the gold standard and why is it considered such a radical move to have a balancing system today? Uh, gold standard, as you uh, note, was, uh, uh, was elegant and simple. What it, uh, it was more or less simply this. Uh, uh, one's currency was uh, a claim on gold. It was convertible on demand into gold at a fixed weight. Um, uh, you could exchange paper for gold or gold for paper as you wanted. Um, gold, uh, uh, importantly, could enter and leave the country as it wanted to. Uh, gold, went where it was treated well, being money, it was treated well. And if uh, prices in a certain gold standard country got out of line, say if they got too high, well, um, that meant that uh, there were better opportunities elsewhere. Price gold would leave that country, and the, and the leaving um, that gold would uh, uh, would exert a downward pressure on prices and activity in countries that had been inflating. So the gold standard was a was was a synchronous force among the nations that participated in the system. That ended in 1914. By 1920-21, the gold standard was, was kind of a halfway um, uh, uh, halfway gold standard, but um, there was enough of it left uh, to, uh, to energize the American recovery in 1921. Gold came into this country freely. America was really the last country to have abandoned um, the essential workings of that standard in World War I. One that never did formally abandon the workings of the gold standard. So uh, uh, America's uh, ports were open to gold to leave or enter, and it entered uh, in uh, great, it, it, a lot of it returned in 1921. Now, jumping to today, I'd just like to ask a few current questions which are all relevant uh, when it comes to the, the major themes of this book. I, you have plenty of Keynesians and even non-Keynesians, probably Chicago school folks as well, who would say, look, all of you gold bugs, you predicted that we would have either rampant inflation or something even worse today after quantitative easing one through infinity. Why hasn't it happened? We have seen a great increase in the price of financial assets and reinflation and housing prices, so it, it seeps out into certain areas. In your view, why haven't we seen a massive inflation? Uh, well, the critics are quite, are quite right in that uh, um, the anticipated uh, inflation, anticipated by myself among others, did not happen. I, what, what did happen was a rechanneling of redundant dollars into uh, financial assets and real estate. That certainly has happened. Um, I've always thought that inflation was uh, too much money, uh, not chasing too few goods, but too much money in the things that 
inflation that those inflationary dollars would chase would be revealed, you know, at the time, uh, varying with the cycle. I think what has uh, uh, restrained the prices at the checkout counter, for one thing, and in the labor market, has been worldwide competition for labor. Um, and uh, the dollars that the Fed has created have been to a great degree uh, been uh, cooped up in the financial system rather than circulating in the economy because the banking system has been impaired uh, and regulators have seen to it that uh, uh, the loans are not so freely forthcoming as they might have been otherwise. Um, so I, I, I do think that uh, that the end game of all this will be a, be a serious inflation. Um, it's funny when you look around the world and see these central bankers uh, rooting it on. They, 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 they must have more inflation than we have given them. Another thing to think about is, is uh, in the absence of these uh, really, really radical monetary policies, might we prices have been dwindling? You know, so is, if, if rate inflation now is say 1%, then if it otherwise would have been minus 2% because of the uh, because of the worldwide integration of labor markets, because of the wonders of digital technology, then that increment of what might have been and what is could be seen as a kind of inflation. But in any case, the, uh, um, uh, the monetary authorities are intent on, uh, on, on depreciating the currencies, and I think that uh, in the fullness of time they will succeed all too well. Does the announcement of the ending of QE mean anything? Does it change anything? Well, it changes a lot in the day-to-day -day workings of Wall Street, but uh, I think that the important thing about QE is this, uh, this idea, this radical precedent is now on the books. It's the virus, as it were, is in the monetary bloodstream. And next time there's a problem, what are they going to do? I mean, what, what, what will they do? They have done more and more at every crisis juncture since the early 1990s. First, the federal fund rate was, was the Fed's main policy interest rate was pushed to 3%. That was in the early 90s. Then it was to 1% in the early aughts. Now it's to 0%. In Europe, it's less than zero. Uh, there is so-called quantitative easing, which is a fancy name for the printing of the conjuring of dollar bills and euros and yen. So all of this is now on the precedent uh, in the books as precedent. And the uh, monetarists and Keynesians are rather preening about the evident success of these interventions. And um, we can be sure, I think, that uh, they will not forbear to do more still the next time. There will come a time, I think, when there will be so much as to frighten even the complacent people on Wall Street. And uh, there will finally be this inflation that uh, has been so long in coming. But I, I, I do believe that the end of all this is the, is the final destruction or near destruction of these currencies. And in that process, for individuals, should we be you know, concerned that there's a 5% chance over some period of time that you'll have currency control as the government sending you cash, as was recently cheered on in a, a Council on Foreign Relations article? Um, other think, yeah, these, 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 these ideas are out there. Martin Wolf, columnist uh, for the Financial Times, has written a book in which he says, uh, you know, 
regulation is, is the, the financial world is, is uh, not really the answer. What we should think about is direct monetary funding. That is the catchphrase of the moment, by which is meant the sending of checks out to people from the Department of the Treasury without going through the banking system, just sending people money. Say it's election eve, Benjamin. Wouldn't it be convenient to electronically journal about $100 billion into the, <laughs> into the banking accounts of registered voters? So I think... I think that it should be Elizabeth Warren's platform. It's, you know, it's... We smile, as I see you smiling right now. They can't see it. You readers, viewers, listeners can't see it. But I see Benjamin smiling. But uh, uh, go back five or six years, and the idea of QE would have been almost unthinkable, and yet it has happened. Uh, there is uh, an astonishing um, amount of, uh, of improv over the past. Uh, there's been an astonishing amount of improv over the past five or six, seven years, and uh, I fully expect it to continue and become, you know, kind of wilder and crazier. Ultimately, were there no political implications to it, would the most honest thing that a government could do? say the U.S. government, be to ultimately default outright as opposed to printing money ad infinitum and effectively doing the same thing over a longer period of time? Right. I think if, to the extent that the world is over-leveraged, I think it is, to the extent that uh, our debts weigh too heavily, and perhaps they do, uh, the thing to do is reorganize. I mean, if a company is, is over-encumbered, if a family is over-encumbered, there, there are the recourses is to negotiations with the lenders or, or uh, bankruptcy or reorganization of some kind. And I think that is uh, much more straightforward. I mean, to, to inflate away debts is to, is to reorganize everyone, right? What we want to do, what we should want to do, is to have the creditors and the debtors sit down and recognize that uh, they've overdone it. Both parties are complicit. Uh, they, certainly, the creditors overlend, borrowers overdid it themselves, and let let us come to a reckoning. But the monetary solution to this is is simply to destroy the savings of the uh, of the innocent bystander. What is your view on Bitcoin, and do you think that governments will ultimately allow competing currencies, or as soon as they become too competitive, clamp down? Bitcoin to me is, uh, is uh, Silicon Valley's cry for help. You know, it, um, I think very, very smart people see that something doesn't make sense. And they, they want an alternative. They want uh, they want uh, a form of money and especially a form of transactions that is outside the uh, the orbit of government influenced and controlled banks. Uh, they are uncomfortable with. I think they, Post Snowden era, they're uncomfortable with uh, all manner of electronic uh, security or insecurity. Uh, two features to Bitcoin: one is the uh, is the facility of transacting, and the second is Bitcoin as a store of value. And I think that the future of cryptocurrencies lies especially in transacting and doing so outside the banking system and uh, anonymously and uh, and through my gathers the blockchain. Do so. Uh, with um, others uh, you know, corroborating the, uh, uh, the transaction and, and validating it as the transaction proceeds through the chain. Um, so I, 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 I stand as 
an interested and enthusiastic observer of the experimentation of people much smarter than myself in the uh, way of cyber currencies. But I think that uh, to a degree, with respect to money, they are trying to reinvent the wheel. The, uh, gold has uh, uh, a legacy brand. Uh, you need an instruction manual for Bitcoin. Uh, gold is self-evident as money. I was at a monetary conference yesterday at the Cato Institute in Washington. There's a session on Bitcoin. And a lot of the Condite talk about the blockchain, and crypto, this, and, uh, and uh, at the end of it, is question. Some guy my age, uh, at 106, stands up and says, uh, I've asked this question every time I've heard of Bitcoin in the past six months. What the hell is it? <laughs> One of the panelists says, well, it's a series of digits. Ah, that's as they always say. <laughs> so, I mean, I think I think that uh, I think that one simple approach to currencies is if they cost nothing to produce, perhaps that is the value to which they will finally descend. The cost of production of a Swiss franc or a Japanese yen or U.S. dollar is, is <coughs> nothing. And perhaps that is the intrinsic value. I wouldn't disdain to pick a hundred dollar bill on the sidewalk by any means. But I think we are trending towards rediscovering that uh, the cost of production of these things is very, very low. Jim, you've been very generous with your time. I just have one last question. For those listeners who are sufficiently terrified at this point <laughs> of the prospects for the U.S. economy and the world, what would be the one piece of advice you would give them either about investing oh, or God, protecting God, themselves? God, 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 this book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, may I um, sign off by uh, observing that uh, there's no need to be terrified. I mean, this is least the world is, it might not be the ideal world from a libertarian point of view, but it is the only world we have. There's plenty of enterprise. America as an economy is, is self-evidently indestructible because we know how hard they have tried to do it. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.